Hi and welcome back to The Mariner with me, Chris Dalmore Major. This is the third of these podcasts. Hopefully we can start to build this into something. And I started off with something that's from my life, something I'm passionate about, and that's me entering the Velux 5 Oceans race. And I, I wanted to put that down first as a kind of foundation for who I am as a sailor. And then we can pack that out and build that out maybe as trust develops and you understand what I know and what I don't know and get a feel for the miles I've done, the experiences I've had, and how I may be a resource for you, not just for stories and a few giggles and uh, yarns told on watch, but um, technical aspects of sailing, uh, running crews, management of crews at sea, and boats far from land. carry on as best I remember from the chronology of the last podcast um, I think let's jump into the start and the start day and uh, the start day was awesome it was in France it was in La Rochelle and you know uh, it had been a very very busy and a very stressful time getting the boat ready it had been a case of uh, get a boat which had not really been on the water for four years, just a few bits and bobs around the Solent, and take that boat and make it into something which could go around the world again. And uh, I was doing it with minimal amount of money, with just eight weeks, and I had just got back from sailing uh, around the world as the captain of a clipper boat with 20-odd people on board, and two months' time, we're going to go again. So i got to say I was pretty frazzled. I don't think I really realized at the time how uh, stressed and frazzled I was. Uh, I remember someone saying to me, you're so stressed out. I said, no, I'm not stressed. Look at me, I'm completely relaxed. I don't know what you're talking about. Obviously, maybe not old enough or or wise enough <laughs> to realize what was going on. And stress shows itself in all sorts of ways. And having a calm voice doesn't cover over what's going on. Um, I was burnt out from doing the clipper thing. Uh, 40, 43,000 miles around the world, plus training 50,000 miles in about 12 months. And it was time to go and do it all again. So the start day was, you know, this was not some well-oiled machine with a pro crew. This was everybody I knew you know, doing things like painting the numbers on the deck two days before we went and strapping the life raft in with every knot they knew. And um, inside the boat on start day, tools were everywhere. Kit was everywhere. I'd sailed the boat about, um, I think probably all told about 1,200 miles and only about 500 of those, 600 of those maybe had been solo. So um, yeah, I knew I know how boats work and I knew kind of how that boat worked, but this was way off being any kind of an organized plan. And I <laughs> I went out to the start line and it was very, very cool because they like play a song when you go out. We'd picked um, Wake Up uh, by um, Rage Against the Machine and um, it was super inspiring. There's like a long line of people and I've got all my... Uh, red and gray gear on. I got my Spartan shield, which we'd kind of designed and brought together and painted the boat and done all this stuff. And uh, I'm walking down amongst the people and I'm like slapping the hands of the people that are putting their hands out. I'm like, oh my God, this is the most <laughs> like, exciting thing I've ever done with my pants on. And uh, then I get on the boat and then there's this feeling like, oh my God, like I'm going to go and uh, 
I'm going to go and try and sail solo around the world <laughs> in this bloody boat that I don't understand at all. So off down the uh, the canal there or the, the narrow channel that comes out of La Rochelle, um, the boat, just interestingly, going through the bridge was almost like a little bit stressy. It wasn't really an issue, but the boat I had was an open 60 with deck spreaders, which if you don't know that, that's a triant rig, which comes from the French for push-pull. And it's um, basically you end up having a mast which has no spreaders on it um all of the uh rigging angle is created on the deck now the the boat was pretty wide it was like 19 foot 6 wide which is uh 5.9 meters i think um well it's exactly the same as a boat i've got so i hope that's the same and um but then it had these enormous carbon fiber arms that stuck out uh, at midships, um, you know, where, below where your spreaders would normally be, be, and they increased the overall width of the boat to 36 feet, which is, uh, was that like 12? Is that really true? 12 meters? My goodness, yeah, 10 meters, 30 feet, 33 feet, okay, 11 meters, 36, okay, so 11 meters, 11 meters wide. So going through bridges and stuff was uh, nerve-wracking, to say the least. So out to the start area, and uh, I've got some of my crew on board. I've got my mate Aston on board. Shout out to Aston. And um, he uh, was joining me as someone like um, with very basic skills in the boatyard. But just as an FYI, Aston has gone on to work with me going around the world. Uh, he was the crew that came on board and fixed everything when I was in port. It was a, a solo race, of course. And then he went to work for Magma, doing stuff with enormous carbon masts. I believe he was involved in the team that built the enormous carbon unstayed masts that are on Yacht A. If you haven't looked up what Yacht A is, prepare to have your mind blown. It was uh, designed by, a, uh, I think, like a famous hotel designer or something. It's wild. Check it out, Yacht A. Uh, I believe you can uh, like drive a small car through the masts. That's how big they are. And anyway, then he went on to doing like carbon fiber work. He worked with the Volvo 65s. I think he worked on the Vestas project when that one went on the reef. Um, and last time I saw him, he was flying high doing carbon fiber work uh, for BAR, I think, at the America's Cup. So yeah, he's gone a long way. But at this point, <laughs> he not know so much. And um he, he did everything he possibly could. He helped me get the main slab. He did all this stuff. And then we're waiting, waiting. We're getting down to like a couple of minutes before the, um, before the, all the crew have to be off. Otherwise, there's penalties, there's problems. If your crew aren't off like a couple of minutes before the start, you're in for trouble. So um, he's trying to get off. But he, the issue is not him. The issue is that the person that's driving the, uh, the speedboat, the rib, is like swerving and ducking and diving and all the weirds. And they're shouting to us, there's something wrong with the steering. So I'm like, Jesus, what so Finally, it gets close enough that he literally jumped off the boat and just got his upper body and torso onto the sides of the rib, legs in the water, clambered aboard and got off. And that was the first point at which I think it struck home to me. <laughs> like, oh my God, I got to take this thing through a start line. Luckily, uh, you know, well... Luckily, unluckily, the, 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 the Velux Five Oceans race had uh, been the BOC Around Alone. The British Oxygen Company sponsored Around Alone. It was an enormous event with a, an A class and a B class. The A class was open 60s. The B class was the open 50s. Um, there was a huge following for it. It was a, a big event. Um, it had been running since 
I think it actually started before the Vendée Globe. Like, don't quote me. Yeah, okay, you can quote me on that. I'm pretty sure about that, actually. It started before the Vendée Globe, um, and it was um, it was the race that Sir Robin Knox Johnson instigated after his win in the... Um, the Golden Globe race, and uh, it was just a bastion of, of offshore sailing. When I got to it, and I don't think it was my fault, like I didn't break it myself, but when I got there, uh, there were only, uh, there was Brad Van Loo, there was Gutek, uh, oh man, how do you say the rest of his name? Gutek Zibinowski. Gu- it's a lot of consonants and vowels in a combination that I am unfamiliar with, but I knew him and still know him as Gutek. So we'll go with that. Um, he'd done stuff like sailing, uh, I think in the race, the big multi-hole race around the world in 2000, he'd done stuff with lots of offshore racing and dinghy racing and Brad Van Loo obviously had already been in the BOC around alone and had done very well and already won a solo around the world race. Then there was Derek Hatfield, who'd done the BOC in a 40-footer and then done the um, the Vendée Globe in the Open 60. And then there was um, Christoph Bullens, who had suffered some um, considerable disaster close to the start line. He'd gone and done his qualifying on his boat, Ocean of Smiles. Pardon me. And then he had um, uh, been dismasted and damaged the boat so badly that there was nowhere getting it uh, back together again before the race. So... Velux had helped him out, which was awesome. They were an amazing sponsor. They really were the best people to work with. They're very hands-on. They're very there, ready to help everybody at a personal level. And they had helped him to charter another boat. So he had this boat, but he did need to go and do a qualifier in it. So he came to the start line as uh, along with us, but he was actually going off to do like a thousand-mile loop to prove that the boat was safe, that he was safe, and that he could then set off down to... Uh, well, down on the next leg. And the next stop from France was Cape Town. And if you don't know uh, your Atlantic transiting methods, to get to Cape Town, you don't just go straight from um, from Europe to Cape Town, like down the coast of West Africa, as you might imagine. You've got to go down to the Canaries, and then you've got to go across the Atlantic to Fernando Orna, the islands off the corner of uh, Brazil there. And then you turn and do a big arcing loop that brings you down the western side of the southern Atlantic and then arcs you round in a circle towards Cape Town. That's because the uh, St. Helena High sits around and about the island of St. Helena in the South, uh, South Atlantic towards the eastern side of the South Atlantic. It sits there and it's in the southern hemisphere, so it's rotating anti-clockwise. And that means if you drive into it, there's no wind at all. So you need to be on the edge of it on this uh, anti-clockwise rotating roundabout. So you come down on the western side of the southern Atlantic and then rotate around it, creating a very interesting tactical moment of um, when do you turn uh, east and head for Cape Town. Too early, you run into the high, too late, and you miss and overstand. So anyway, as we go into the start line, we've got Derek, we've got Christoph, we've got Gutek, we've got Brad, and we've got me. And that's only five. And five going into the start of a solo around the world race is, you know, it's a sad thing. And it's something which um, I'm still very aware of. I think it was very graphically painted to me because I did that event. But it's been a great sadness to me ever since to know and to observe and be and watch 
the decline of offshore sailing, which has now got to the point where we've got a Volvo race which sets off with seven boats and the Von, well, the Vendée Globe, except for the Vendée Globe. And we can talk about that in a later podcast. Why is French sailing on its ascendancy and why is uh, so much of the rest of sailing kind of falling apart? But that's maybe not to get into now. But uh, going to the start line, thank God, from my point of view, <laughs> there are only four other boats. <laughs> so... Um, into the start line, uh, not too bad. It's kind of a weird thing when you're solo because, you know, tacking those boats and jiving those boats, it's a big deal. It's not just like you push the helm over. You've got backstays to work on. We can discuss later what that all means. But big running backstays that you cannot, like, um, you can't decide, oh, I won't bother with the backstay this time. They must be on. There's a lot of movement of a lot of line. It's all very heavy, as you might imagine. There's big head cells moving around the place and you're just like in this tiny little cockpit to give you an idea on spartan which was my boat um if you were sitting in a a laser a laser dinghy uh, you sort of have about the same amount of protection as i did <laughs> maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration but if you're sitting in a cruising boat and you're sitting on a cockpit bench with your feet planted on the floor and a 90 degree angle in your um legs then that's the same uh, height as the side decks on Spartan. And then across the cockpit would be about, I don't know, three feet. No, maybe more than that. Maybe three. Yeah, okay. Maybe like four feet, four and a half feet, maybe a meter and a half, something like that. So it's like four feet across and you could just lie down in it, uh, six feet long. And it's at like foot and a half deep. And then at the front edge is just this very small uh, cockpit like bubble, um, which if you're stood, when I was stood at it, the um, uh, the top of the cabin in an arcing shape would come up to just a, like my belt. So that's the total um, <laughs> protection. Now, when I compare that to the Volvo 65s, when I compare that to the new Open 60s, even Alex Thompson's Open 60, which is fully enclosed, which is a genius idea and very safe, awesome, and I'm sure very necessary with the accelerations and deaccelerations of um, you know working on foils. Um, but when you've got that little protection, um, I can tell you right now without having to leap forward and, and, and incorporate spoilers, uh, the Southern Ocean is a very scary place to be. So I'm in this little cockpit, tiller in hand. Um, the boat's got double tillers at the back. Uh, got these tillers in hand. I'm trying to work with the autopilot and pull ropes and do whatever. Get through the start line, but very quickly realize, like, man, this is this boat's going really slowly, and I've got like full main and you know big jib up and a big solent jib out. Now, little did I know, and we've got to remember, of course, that down there inside the uh, cabin, as I said, there's tools everywhere, there's crap everywhere, there's it's complete disarray. Um, I didn't know, but Aston, my man, who has now gone on to such huge things in an attempt to help me get the uh, biggest performance um, boost that I could possibly get at this early point in the race to really set me up for success on a day with 10 knots, had very helpfully put down all the scoops to get all the ballast in for maximum speed, <laughs> which he now, if he's listening to this, is cringing, knows that's probably not such a good idea. Um, what happens on these boats, so they have ballast tanks, which you can fill the two at the back if you're reaching really fast off the wind. Um, and you need to get the back of the boat down, kind of like a surfer would move towards the back of the board to pop the nose and, you know, uh, make surfing easier. Um, you could have the ones at the front filled so that you can punch through waves with momentum and weight and, and keep the bow planted so it doesn't uh, fall off to leeward as you're beating. You could have the one at the back and the one at the front filled up on one side, so you've got writing writing moment to help the the, the canting keel. Um, 
but there's very rarely a moment where all four uh, are in use because if I remember correctly, uh, there was a ton in either of the forward tanks and there was 1.5 ton in either of the aft tanks. So there was uh, five tons extra water on board. And as the boat weighed nine tons dry, uh, that's like 50% extra than it uh, didn't need to have. So we were a little slow through the start line, but um, uh, I don't know if I worked it out right then because something else happened. Uh, I got to the first mark, I think last or second to last or something, which bear in mind with this race, Felix had been very, very generous. And um, as we finished the legs, there was money available, which very rarely happens in yacht racing. There's money available for first, second, third, fourth, fifth, like every position was getting money. And thank God, because, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of um, shoestring uh, uh, adventurers uh, involved in this of greater or lesser degree, but no one with millions of dollars. And those that that money, those thousands that uh, Velux made available really did allow this thing to happen. Um, but there was a thousand euros for the first person of the first mark. There was a turning mark, um, and uh, well, I, I didn't win it, but I, I'm pretty sure Brad Van Loo did, if I remember, and he won a lot of them. Um, but uh, I got the first mark. I uh, unfurled my Code Five, which is uh, a reaching sail, which uh, I used a lot of on that boat. I didn't have many big head sails, not very many um, flying head sails. And the Code 5 uh, was was a, a big buddy for me. Um, set it on the winch, went down inside to like work. I think I had worked out that the scoops were down, but I think the water was coming out of the overflows at this point. So I could see the overflows on deck where um, water was running uh, all over the deck. So I, I, I concluded what was going on. So I was going inside the boat to, to work that out. Um, when I went inside, suddenly there was a rattle, there was a bang, there was a noise like the end of the world. And I honestly thought that we'd driven into a, um, a spectator boat or something. I'd cleared the mark and I was on my reaching leg and really it should just be open ocean ahead of me. But it was such a noise. I thought, you know, like, it was the first thing that came to my head. Went up on deck, looked around, there's no boats around anywhere. Like, okay. And uh, everything's pulling, okay. Like, what's, and then, I looked at the winch, which had the sheet on for the Code 5, and it's just this enormous, crazy jumble of rope like I'd never seen it before. And the, then I realized that the trim on the sail is atrocious and that what I'm looking at is that something's gone wrong with the winch. And it took me a couple of minutes to work it out, and it took me a little bit of time to get the sheet off that winch onto another one. But what had happened was that they were composite winch drums, and then there's an alloy set of teeth that go inside the winch drum to allow it to uh, engage with the, the gearing of the winch itself. So composite drum, but alloy ring inside. A load of teeth had sheared on this uh, set of uh, this alloy ring and the winch was completely useless. And what happened was basically the winch had wound backwards. So it sucked in line from the from the stripper, from the you know the little metal bit that separates the line off the winch. And uh, well, it was a mess. So in that boat, I had um, two backstay winches and two primary winches and a one main sheet winch, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think there was five winches on that boat. I don't think there are any little utility winches on that one. I'd have to double check. There were two at the mast. There were two at the mast. That's right, the main halyard on one side. Oh, you know what? And there was one on the boom. So there was a mast, uh, there was a winch on either side of the mast, one for like the headsails, one for the main halyard. And then there was one on the boom for the reefs. And then there were 
two in the cockpit for the primaries for the for the jib and, and for the headsaws if that's what you're flying two behind them for the um, backstays and one for the main sheet so main sheet's going to stay where it is backstay the working backstay's got to be on the uh, one winch of course um, you need to have one free to like do stuff uh, and then I had now just lost one of my primaries so uh, I sailed from um, France to Cape Town on my first leg in an open 60 having only ever sailed uh, 500 miles solo on an open 60 and probably having not sailed more than about 800 miles solo uh, with four winches in the cockpit. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of set the tone, didn't it? So um, so off I jolly well trotted uh, out of uh, La Rochelle and I'd already done that journey in the Clipper race out of La Rochelle uh, a year before. And actually, you know, one thing that was very cool is that obviously I'm a student of round the world sailing and I have a great passion for these things. And one of my great heroes of... Um, around the world sailing uh, obviously is Sir Robin Knox Johnson as he was extremely kind and uh, put everything in my way so that I could do that event and um, and, and was able to go and be involved in it but um, I have to admit a soft spot for Bernard Mortissier and uh, you know the passion with which he wrote um, his books I think let me say as an author I, I he's, he's a hero for me the way that he wrote about sailing the passion he had for it really inspired me and um i i hope that if i uh communicate about sailing uh in in a fraction of the way that he does and transmit some of the passion and the energy for it then i'm, I'm a very happy camper um but uh his boat on the golden globe race course was joshua which is a little red boat black trim white tops and uh, i'd gone and visited it before the clipper race and then it had led us out to the start on the uh, on the start of the Clipper race, which was awesome. Um, I guess that's funny for Sir Robin because he kind of goes over to the people who now look after it at the La Rochelle Museum. He's like, hey, this was my mate's boat. Can we borrow it? It must be a very odd kind of connectivity for him. Um, but it was there again, leading us out to the start of the of the Velux race, which was awesome, right? This little red boat. And just to spool a long way forward, after... All these things have happened and, you know, probably six years had gone past. Um, I came back to La Rochelle with my um, Whitbread 60 Spartan. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Whitbread, 60, Whitbread 60, if I can say it, put my teeth back in. Whitbread 60 that we now have respond called Challenger. And as I was going back into La Rochelle for my first time, having not been there for ages, which boat comes out? Out comes Joshua. Out comes Joshua, not to meet me. They just happened to be going out in the water. It really made my heart sing. Um, but anyway, I, I uh, am the king of the tangents, and there we go off on one. But the point was that I had done a start from La Rochelle in similar waters at a similar time of year, only a year before. And so I had a bit of a tactic, and what I did is I shot across Biscay and then to the, the top corner of... It's actually, I've learned since, it actually is Spain. It's like Spain just wraps around the top of Portugal. You're up kind of near Vigo, I think, is it Dijon that's in that area as well? And then it gets to Cap Finisterre on the corner. And um, I got so close to the beach off Cap Finisterre that someone phoned me from the race organization and asked me if I was awake. <laughs> I was literally uh, probably, say, 200 meters, without joking, 200 meters outside the swimmers off, off the beach there, wherever that place was that I went past. Um, but I knew damn well that, uh, that the current was good and I knew the conditions were favorable and I obviously, of course, was awake and uh, it was worth 20 miles very close to the coast. And I did okay. I can't remember exactly um, 
you know, where I was in the field, but I was like second or something or, or you know, I was doing okay. Uh, but I did have a problem on board, which was to be create my first um, uh, big mistake. And that was that um, we had not set up the, uh, the computer properly and I was not receiving weather downloads. So what I didn't know is that uh, off the coast of Portugal, a high pressure system was developing and um, I had to keep proceeding um, even though I didn't have weather. So what I'm of course doing is looking at the other competitors, looking at Derek, looking at, uh, at Gutek, looking at Brad. Christoph Bullens had kind of gone his own way because he was heading off towards, uh, I think the, towards the Azores or something on a loop that he'd been told to go and do and come back to um, back to La Rochelle. So we were heading off in a, in a little uh, four man, unfortunately no women in this race at all. Um, a, a big problem with offshore sailing by the way, but let's get that to another time. But um, we're heading off, like kind of cutting off the top of Spain, kind of heading down towards the Canaries. Um, and I uh, I didn't know this high pressure was developing. What I was doing, because I had no weather information, was just watching the every six hours, uh, the race organizers would send us the positions of all the boats. Um, we call these skeds, and they would send us skeds every um, every six hours so I could see what everybody was doing. I could see what everybody was up to, and I could understand exactly uh, where I was within all of that. But <laughs> that is not a very good way to try and make tactical decisions about uh, how to operate a boat race. So what ended up happening is this high pressure developed, and what all of the other people were uh, doing was waiting, waiting, waiting until they could get as close to the high pressure as possible. And then at the last minute, take a turn, uh, go around the edge of the high pressure and, you know, continue on racing. But I didn't know the high pressure was there. So what I did is I received a scared of the people around me and saw, oh my God, they've all changed course six hours ago. <laughs> they'd all waited until the last sked and they'd all changed direction. Of course, great tactics on the last sked. So now I realize, holy mackerel, uh, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm out in the middle of nowhere with no clue at all of uh, what's about to come. And I, But I think that just to add uh, insult to injury, really rub salt into the wound, what happened next was, um, the computer did fire up with the, I think I knew full well at that point, like I have to make this thing work. So I made it work and, <laughs> or it just happened to, because it's got a sense of humor, of course, like all computers, it came on and it showed me that I was running directly into the path of a high pressure system, which um, had no wind at all in it. And literally within two or three hours or something, um, I was in water, which I remember taking pictures of it and it was so reflective and so flat. Maybe it wasn't two or three hours. I guess that's me remembering the story from, from a, a decade ago. But let's say by the next day, uh, it, was so, um, it was so flat around the boat that I stood on deck, could see the reflection of my face in the water. I very clearly remember reading the Velux branding upside down in the water and being able to clearly see the reflection of my own face in the water. So... I was stuck, like super stuck. I had no clue uh, what I could do apart from basically just bob around. What can you do? You can just bob around. And I, I had been obviously becalmed many times before, but I don't think I'd ever been becalmed in such a way that I knew so many people were watching. 
and so many people would be having an opinion like it's you know it's one thing to be out on the races Thursday afternoon at the yacht club and get becalmed or or find a light spot and everybody else goes past you but <laughs> it's like hundreds of thousands of people or whatever it was watching on the internet and uh I was not um uh, you know what can you say so I was frustrated I was super frustrated I was super embarrassed but I did take the advantage take the take the opportunity to do what I could to tie it the boat was still a bit of a mess inside there was still like some of the splices that had been done on the halyards they hadn't been properly uh, laid in so that the um the sheath was still quite loose on the core and that was meaning that some when I was pulling some of the sails up where the you know the the fit was almost perfect between these sails and the available um distance in the in the triangle and so they were actually pulling the um pulling the uh, large lumps of uh, sheath into the sheaths at the top of the mast. And obviously that meant that sails were going up and then getting stuck up. So I, I got up the rig. I sorted that kind of stuff out. Um, I don't know if I did anything else particularly at that point. I think just lolled around. But soon enough, of course, as it always is, as in life, you, you think you're never going to see any wind ever again. But it came back. But when it did come back, I'm sorry to say, you know, if you're in a boat race and you're with other boats that do six knots, then even if you're stuck for 24 hours, it's only me 24 times six. Yeah, 120, 130, 140 miles and you're back into it. When you're with boats that are doing 300 miles a day and <laughs> the lights come back on and the, uh, the, the wind comes back on and, and, and you are back on your way, you're... 500 miles behind which is what I was and uh, that was the first time I had to really suck it in and and uh, decide who I was and what I was about and what I wanted to get out of this race because I was way behind very obviously way behind and it wasn't through anything I could blame like a you know something broken or whatever I just cocked up so as we started to go down towards the Canary Islands I had my tail between my legs and I had my first uh, awareness of the fact of just how difficult this kind of sailing was. The thing that I love about offshore sailing is there's so many elements to it. There are literally so many things that you have to know about. You have to know about everything from, you know, how to get your anti-foul to stick and what combination to use, to how to splice line, to how to cook nutritious meals, to how to fix a diesel engine. Uh, tactics, navigation, first aid, like it just goes on and on and on and on. And that's brilliant because, you know, it'd be a, it wouldn't be much of a thing to learn, would it, if, uh, if you could master it all in 10 minutes. It's, uh, you know, there are lots and lots of sports which have an incredible amount of uh, finesse added to tiny details, but ultimately, Golf is knocking a ball through the air and trying to get it in a hole. Don't, don't all write to me and tell me golf's much more than that. Like, I get it. But you're finessing one thing with, you know, a multitude. You need your 10,000 hours to be an expert at that. But you could be an expert rigger. You could put 10,000 hours into that. You could be an expert diesel mechanic. You could put 10,000 hours into that. You could be an expert navigator or an expert composite guy. You could do first aid at like a you know, uh, uh, ER level or take your woofer or go as a wilderness EMT or any one of these things that you have to be involved in as an offshore sailor all require, you know, huge skill. <laughs> what you end up having to do is be like a uh, jack of all trades and try and just navigate this, this, this 
weird hinterland of like which exact one should I like push my skills on and which one can I avoid to you know as much as possible you could be the best possible tactician or navigator or meteorologist in the world you've got your both boat perfectly placed exactly where it should be on the ocean and you are making it go as fast as it possibly will go and then something breaks that you don't know how to fix and you're out the race or you could be like me, like really good at fixing stuff and really good at problem solving stuff. But if you can't read the weather to the degree required to compete against a, a field of international offshore sailors, uh, you ain't going to look too good. Or if you, uh, you know, like me, the computer ain't working, um, you got a problem. So I, I love offshore sailing for that. For that, but um, but when it goes wrong, oh, man, it crashes hard. So yeah, I. Um, I had a lot to learn, and that was the first time that I really got kicked in the ass and uh, and had to realize where I was at. I think I thought before. I think I said there was like two old guys and a Polish guy. I think was my was my thing. It was something like that, or two old guys, a Polish guy, and and Christoph Bullens. Like I can't remember. I had some flippant thing that was going through my head, and I didn't realize the skill of these people and the knowledge of these people and the way that they can bring that to bear on every aspect of what's going on around them, and and have speed which i you know it took me halfway or a little bit more around the world to have the speed they had um my ideas of just being on a set off the start line and know what's going on i've met lots of people since i've met lots of people obviously in the intervening 10 years who have got uh, an idea that they can that if they had the opportunity and if they had the the finances or if they had the um just just if the chance dropped in their lap, if they had what happened to me happen to them, they would go and ace it. And I got to say, like, uh, no, basically, no more than if you um, know how to drive to the supermarket every day and then someone puts you in NASCAR. Are you likely to, you know, win the Daytona 500 or if you get put in a Formula One car or a rally WRC rally car or something like that? It ain't going to happen. Yeah, you know the basics. Yeah, it's got a clutch, it's got brakes, it's got accelerate, it's got a gear shift, like, fine. You know how to sail, that's cool. You've been out doing loads of stuff inshore. Going and piloting these things offshore is, it's a thing. <laughs> There's nothing else to be said. It's a thing. And you need to, only the people that have done it are qualified to have an opinion on how <laughs> hard or not hard it is. Everyone should have the opportunity to try it. But honestly, I think there was a bit like halfway between, I seem to remember being halfway between France and the Canaries. And um, I was doing something on deck. I think it was the first big heavy reefing situation I got into. I really had to reef in very, very heavy weather. And um, I remember thinking, my God, like surely an adult or some kind of responsible person, my mother perhaps, should have stopped me from doing like this is... This is very dangerous. I can remember standing on the deck. It was definitely nighttime um, thinking this is very dangerous and an adult should have stopped me. So there you go. That's where I was at. So I bimbled along and I, and I got along. I had a lot of things to fix. I had a lot of things to learn. But I did. And that was fine. I, you know, it, I'm, I'm always happy to, um, to try and develop my skills and, and push myself forward. That's the thing that's uh, the best part of it for me in sailing. But um, very quickly... Uh, the Canary Islands started to come towards me. And I knew from experience before that this was a, a major tactical stage where I had an opportunity to do something good and uh, and, and move forward. And um, 
I did move forward, but maybe not necessarily exactly in the way that I expected. And I guess that's the the next juncture in this story. Um, I'm not sure it's a widely used name. I don't think I'm grabbing it off anybody else, but I call the Canary Islands the Canary Cage. Um, you kind of have to go through there, but you can end up getting locked up, becalmed, uh, and sitting around for days in the Canary Islands. The reason for it is that the wind is predominantly blowing uh, in, in a kind of in a trade wind system. It's blowing off of uh, West Africa, off the Sahara, and it's um, it's blowing towards these islands, which are black volcanic islands. And then you have uh, the sun, because you're now getting quite far south. I'm not sure the exact latitude of the Canaries, but I guess you go down to Antigua. So they must be like 23... 25, I don't know, somebody, somebody tell me. Maybe I can look it up on the computer while I'm doing this. But the, it's hot, damn hot. <laughs> Hotter than a snake's ass and a wagon wheel rut. It's hot in the Canaries. And what happens is that black volcanic sand creates a huge upwards funnel of wind and, and a, a huge amount of heat. And then that wind coming from the east meets it and rises up high, high, high above it. And it takes a very long time before that wind pattern rejoins the surface of the ocean so everything downwind of the canaries it's not just that you've got the normal um anabatic winds going up over mountains and and then kind of you know creating lee uh shadows behind the islands you've got this whole heating system which means that there is a giant area downwind of the canaries which can um which can be windless. When I went through there on the clipper race, um, I remember being so badly becalmed there that we got the almanac, the um, nautical like information booklet that we have in the in the Solon, uh, in the UK. It's got all the tides and the sunrises and adverts for marinas and stuff in it. And uh, we made paper airplanes out of them. And we see who could throw the paper airplane fast enough. And about like an hour and a half or two hours later, we drifted back past the uh, paper airplanes in the water. That's how calm it was. I think we had a disco that night as well. I seem to remember flicking the lights on and off and we had a disco ball. Like Clipper is... People always give Clipper a bad rap because they say it's it's not really um, like a true competition or something. And that's, that's junk. That's rubbish. And that's people who have not done it. You know, I, I grew up racing cars at traffic lights with my mates and we were racing engines of like a thousand cc in cars that probably took 17 seconds to get from naught to 60 if they even could. But it was a race because we were there, we were together and, you know, competition is, uh, is, is manufactured by the competitors. Um, the clipper boats are the same boat. They are all the same boat, and therefore it's a race because you want to get your thing uh, ahead of the other person's thing, and that's that's just it, right? So it's a race, fair and square. The boats are set up to be able to, uh, you know, be be operated by people for whom this is a new environment. They do have a big galley. There's 20 people on board. There's a lot of bunks. There's 20 people on board. There's a lot of food storage. There's 20 people on board. Um, they're super strong. They go around the world like three times, four times before it's the end of their that that model's life. Like I'm not here to advertise Clipper, but it's got its upsides, you know. And certainly when I did it with the Clipper 68s, um, I think the races that the 68s did were very, very successful. And going through that area on the 68, I had learnt that you can end up becalmed very heavily. Um, I remember seeing on that race that uh, I think it was Eero Lykinen who was the Finnish skipper. Uh, who, in many ways, without probably realizing, helped catapult me to do the things I did after Clipper. But um, 
we all went through the Canary Islands and he saw ahead what was going to happen. And he drove like between the Canary Islands and, uh, and, uh, West Africa, uh, added, I don't know how many hundreds of miles, uh, looked like he was insane. And, uh, <laughs> the rest of us, I think it was most of the rest of us went, um, through the Canaries and become for days and he shot ahead and won. So, you know, there's a lot to be played for when you're in, in an area where um, things can be so calm. But um, as I approached it, I knew that I needed to really be on my best game. So I was about, um, I was about like 16 or 20 miles away or something, you know, and just start to see the top of the peaks. I think it was Mount T-Day or something. And I, you're navigating those boats, obviously. The way the autopilot systems work, um, oh man, I don't want to get into a whole separate thing about how autopilots work. Let's do that afterwards. Let's keep this story going. But basically you can steer by the apparent wind you can steer by the true wind. You can steer to a um, along a compass course, or you can steer to a a, a position which you've marked uh, on the electronic chart and then transferred to the autopilot. You can also do it by like using the autopilot to to move the helm for you. So you've got like it'll set it five degrees this side, three degrees that side, and you so you can steer out of port doing that kind of thing. But primarily, it's apparent wind, true wind. Uh, or compass course is what I would always use. So I'm sailing on apparent wind, um, probably like fine reaching or something. And uh, I thought I'd just I'd just get some sleep. Now I'd I'd had a, a hard time sleeping because I hadn't done that much sailing offshore on open sixty. And it is uh, <laughs> it's something to be experienced if you've never done it before. Um, imagine you're doing sixteen knots <laughs> on a giant carbon fiber uh, like porpoise. And um, hundreds and hundreds of horsepower. If you didn't know, like, if you take the hull configuration of an Open 60 and uh, just take it as being a hull that you want to drive at a particular speed, um, you can do the calculations through and you can work out what horsepower you'd have to have on board to be able to drive it at X speed, you know, Y speed, whatever it is you want. So when you're talking about getting up onto the plane on one of those boats and when you start to haul ass at like 16, 17, 18 knots, you're talking in and around 500 horsepower. If you're just going to have an engine and have a propeller and get yourself a setup and make that nine-ton boat go at those kind of speeds, uh, you're going to need about 500 horsepower, which I was always a bit sort of surprised by that. But that, that kind of makes sense. That's going to be, you know, a couple of 250s on the back of it, pushing a 60-foot, nine-ton carbon boat. Like, sounds about right, doesn't it? But it's uh, that's kind of what you're looking at, and that's the kind of force that's going through the sails. So this stuff keeps going through your mind and going through your mind and going through your mind and trying to sleep is real tricky but I thought you know what I want to be on my best as I go through the Canary Islands here make good decisions I'll get a bit of a sleep in we've got 20 miles to get there I'll set the alarm get 20 30 40 minutes in which is you know 40 minutes of a big sleep on a on an open 60 but we're doing 16 knots it's 20 miles away so if I set it for like 30 minutes like that should be fine yeah so I woke up an hour and a half later woke up an hour and a half later and uh at first, I didn't know anything was wrong because um, what happens is you either need to set the chart plotter to follow the boat or you're looking at other particular things. And if you've been looking at stuff, which I've been looking at the, uh, the, 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 the gap between the islands, which wasn't very wide um, ahead of me, um, the boat now was not on the chart plotter. So when I looked up, I didn't see the boat or its relation to the land. All I saw is what I had previously been looking at. So I lazily reach over. I press the center on boat button. I zoom out slightly and realize that the boat <laughs> is uh, in between the islands. And I had slept uh, 
I know you can't sleep through the alarm because there's no point saying that. That's a that's a uh, you know that's a teenage uh, excuse. There's no sleeping through the alarm. I obviously didn't set the alarm properly. I didn't set it. I woke up and turned it off. Whatever that was, um, it was one of the only times I ever did it. <laughs> to be absolutely honest, in fact, I think it was the last time I ever did it. Uh, and since people always say to me, "How can you sleep twenty minutes at a go and only two or three hours a day?" It's like thinking you're gonna die is a great alarm clock, and that's exactly what I learned at that moment. It felt like a massive trapdoor opened underneath me. Um, I don't remember if I was like, I don't think I was heading towards the land. If I remember correctly, I went on deck like in a mad cold panic and looked around. And basically, there was just two rooster tails coming out the back of the boat from the rudders. Everything's pulling perfectly. The land is equidistant on either side of me. And, it, it you know, it's not like we're trying to get down like the... Uh, Manchester ship canal here we're not going down something that's you know 10 foot wide in the boat we're going down something that's a couple of mile wide but here's the deal I was steering by apparent wind <laughs> and the apparent wind apparently uh, moves around quite a lot when you pass from open ocean into an island system with giant volcanic uh, mountains all around you but for whatever reason I think I was I did have a bit of a kind of like a, a connection to that boat I did have a kind of um I, I did have a, I don't know, like, I think if you know boats and you know machinery and you know cars and you're around them all the time, this will make sense to you. They have, like, a personality. I've known people, I'm talking to you, Piers Duden, who, um, who deal with the boat as though there's many personalities from many pieces of equipment inside the boat, which uh, I can remember Piers who is a great sailor, and uh, I, I shouldn't, and I'm not mocking him, but uh, the story was so funny, so much better told by him, but he raced um, Mini Transat, and he was telling me about, like, you know, he's sailing along, and the batteries are like, oh, man, so tired, like, having to do so much work. The battery charge is like, well, look, I'm not going to help you out because I'm getting almost nothing from the solar cells. Hey, solar cells, what are you doing up there? Well, dude, like, there's clouds up here. Like, this is really hard. Like, we're trying to... Oh, man. And then the depth sounder, he's not done anything for like two weeks. He suddenly he's like, four meters. You're like, dude, there's no way it's four meters deep. We're in the Atlantic. He's like, yeah, but, you know, I was feeling lonely. Like, this is how Piers talks about being on his boat. I think that would send me totally batty. But um, but dealing with the boat as though it's an entity, let's, let's break it down in two ways. Because I don't want uh, to kick off this new season of the podcast by sounding like I'm... Um, waxing lyrical about uh, the spirituality of the sea let, let me break this down uh it is intelligent to deal with the boat like it is an entity that requires uh, and offers communication and i'll tell you why if you deal with it like it's a piece of machinery which you operate at arm's length you will forever be on the wrong side of uh of the communication conundrum the boat is forever communicating through vibrations, through little sounds, through um, changes in frequency of those vibrations, through um, series of small clues which can lead you to deduce, you know, what's going on, and it can uh, it can identify to you long before there's a disaster that there's an issue that needs your attention. With that constellation of language in air quotes coming at you it is better to think of the boat as a living entity that requires that part of your brain to be active and then you're more likely to pick up 
on those messages. Our brains have developed over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, to communicate. It's one of the key things that identifies human beings and has given us a survival advantage uh, in, in the biosphere we live in. Our brains are clued into listening to things, into communicating with our mouths, into talking to things, into interpreting what's going on around us, into listening for danger, listening for the tribe coming back to the cave or whatever it is. But when you start to deal with machinery as though it is something you must communicate with, then you are opening yourself up to using a part of your brain which is highly attuned to listening for and sensing communication, sensing the things, the messages that the boat's trying to, trying to give you, right? So how do you initialize that? Well, I think you need to have a conversation with the boat. People say they talk to their plants and the plants do better. Here's another way of looking at it. If you're spending an hour a day looking at something, talking to it, you're probably going to notice if it's a bit damp, a bit too dry, aphids on it, uh, sunlight's too strong, it's in a draft, you know, you're probably going to be interacting with it because you choose to deal with it as though it's something you're communicating with. Suddenly you do get a lot of feedback from it, even though it's very clearly uh, not conscious, okay? If you deal with the boat in that way, then you go up on deck and say, all right, girl, you know, it's sunset. We're going to have a check. I'm going to have a look. Look up your skirt. See what's going on here. I walk around the deck and I will put my ear against the mast and I will listen to the mast and I will listen to the halyards creaking at the top of the rig. I listen to the the, the wires inside the snake, which is like kind of like the uh, the, the, the webbing thing that the, the, the wires go down inside the mast. I can hear the snake slapping gently against the inside of the mast. I can hear the rigging taking the strain. I can feel the boat bucking underneath me. I can feel the motion of the mast relative to the boat. I can, hang on, whoa, what? I can feel the mast moving relative to the boat. Whoa, 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 what's this? You see what I'm saying? It's like you're, you're communicating, you're, you're interacting with it on a lot more kind of like basic level. You, you, your brain's much more attuned to picking up on small things. And by listening and by asking questions and by constantly kind of like being engaged in a, a backs and forwards conversation with the boat, I think you avoid uh, issues which strike people who deal with a piece of machinery and too easily turn. If I'm watching TV and my 14-year-old daughter is, you know, I know, gently crying in the in the in the kitchen not that she ever has or would be would be i i'm, I'm making a bad uh, example perhaps but you know what i'm saying if you're watching the tv and you're really super engrossed in it and someone's just gently sniffling and upset in the other room because it's a communication thing it's your family you immediately pick up on that little tiny noise in the background which would probably go unnoticed by someone that's not your family or a guest or or whatever else, you know what I'm saying? It's like if you're dealing with it with something where your brain is attuned to it, your brain listens in. So when I say that there's a relationship with a boat, yeah, I'm speaking about it like lightly. Like, you know, hey, I was talking to the boat. The boat's, uh, boat saved me as we went in between these islands. Maybe. But I'm also doing it from a more scientific point of view and trying to understand, you know, that linguistics. I actually have a degree in linguistics if you're interested, if you want to have a bit of a laugh. But I from a linguistic point of view to to get that part of your brain involved in that 
to to solve engineering issues before they really become a big problem for you that's super smart so don't tell me like uh i'm being whimsical to say i was talking to the boat because i science the shit out of this this is about trying to stay safe so anyway i was talking to the boat and um <laughs> i said you know not bad job thanks very much but uh i i i gotta say i had a wave of like confidence and enthusiasm that washed over me and i reached for a can of creamed rice pudding uh, ambrosia creamed rice pudding my favorite my my trophy my my reward to myself for being so clever and so lucky and i i downed that gorgeous little creamy gem from devon and uh and thought you know what i got this round the world thing totally and utterly handled and that's the exact moment that a giant catabatic blast came down off Fuerteventura and uh, the boat rounded up. I was sailing along under Code Zero and full mainsail. The boat rounded up. The tack <laughs> on the Code Zero broke. Uh, the boat crash tacked, kept going around in a circle, crash jibed with the Code Zero, which weighs 100 pounds, that's like 50 kilos when it's dry. Now, furiously flying uh like thrashing all over the place with the furler still attached to it uh and attempted to start dismasting the boat uh in what had now jumped from being like 15 knots on the beam to being like white tops and 30 knots and for anybody that's uh, uh kite surfed off Fuerteventura, which i think Fuerteventura literally means strong wind like the clues in the name <laughs> you just need to read the map chris okay it's a chart but read the chart, Chris. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a clue that the island's called Strong Wind. So there is a video of it. I think there's a video on the YouTube channel called What to Do When It All Goes Wrong on an Open 60 or something like that. And there's this giant sail. The boat's tipping over. The keel's on the wrong side. The ballasts are on the wrong side. Everything's on its side. Um, it's all going very, very, very wrong. And uh, I can hear there's a ship goes past me like... I know, like 400, 500 foot long ship. It's cutting through these white tops like they're nothing, of course. And then I watch as all of this is going on. I'm trying to don a, a helmet to get out on the foredeck and try and get this furler off the sail. And and I hear this uh, Dutch voice coming through. Uh, uh, Spaten, 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 this is. And then whatever the name of the ship is. Uh, yeah, are you okay over there? So I managed to scrabble over and I get the uh, the VHF. Yeah, big ship, big ship. This is Spartan. Yeah, we're fine, we're fine. It's like, uh, yeah, it uh, seems like a very, uh, very strong wind to be flying Spinnaker. And I'm like, yeah, well, actually, you know what? It's not actually Spinnaker. <laughs> it's, uh, it's my code zero. So I don't remember the rest of that conversation, but the ship circled once and then went. Whoever that was, thank you so much for uh, for thinking to, to call in and, and see what was going on. It was a very, very dramatic situation. The furler weighs about, I don't know, three kilos, something like that. And it's just, all over the place the sails going completely crazy and i have no ability to to save myself apart from um get the the, the hat on and the furler uh in fairness the furler was still attached to its furling line which had pulled all of its leads off the foredeck so it was thrashing around but within the arc that it was able to do still attach this dyneema furling line which was holding on to it so i was able to uh tackle the furling line and then I think like lash it down in sections to the deck um, and then maybe a little bit of steering with the autopilot remote. I can't quite remember, but whatever it was, I got to the bit where I pulled the pin on the furler and now it was just the sail flying and with the weight gone out of it and with the furling line 
disconnected from the bottom of it, um, it was able to, we were able to steady up the boat. And I had put a big split in the sail. Um, it had almost um, ripped one of the baby stays off the deck spreaders on the starboard side. Um, everything was everywhere. Like it was, and it, the, all of that, as you know, it, take, it feels like it takes 10 seconds. It was like an hour. So I um, scrabbled my way back, went into the cabin for the first time since all this had happened to be greeted by the fact that a 20-liter jug of diesel um, had broken free from where it was stored and had split its sides and uh, no one was laughing. It was uh, everywhere. It was completely everywhere. And my kit bag had been open and now my kit, everything, was uh, in the diesel, in the water, on the floor. And I think it was that exact moment that in a, in a flash of inventory inspiration, I remembered that I had uh, half a bottle of washing up liquid was the only detergent I had on the boat. So I think then, I'm not sure if it's in the video or whatever, but I remember filming myself and just saying, you know, I was beside myself. I think I actually phoned my parents. I think I phoned my parents. That was one of the first times I phoned them. Both my mum and dad were both alive at that point. And I phoned them. And I remember talking to my dad and I was, I was virtually in tears, if not in tears. And uh, he said to me, he said, just take the boat into one of the islands of the Canaries and I will send you the money for the ticket. You've tried. You know, you've you've come this far, you've done us proud, but you got to be safe. And I said, thank you so much. And he was always so good for that. It was always, my dad was all sorts of things, but he was one of those people, and everybody should have a person like this, that if the shit hits the fan, there is one person you can phone that you know without a shadow of a doubt that person will come to you. They will come. And you must never, ever waste that you must never cry wolf with that it is the most incredible safety net to have to know if i phone this person whoever it may be it may be someone unexpected you know i'm not a religious person but it could be the priest it could be um i don't know an old school friend it could be your husband your wife it could be family member it could be but there needs to it's a personality rather than a connection you can be connected to all sorts of people through family and friendships and everything else but maybe not one of them is the kind of person that would just come if you needed help but there'll be a personality that you come across in life that even if you know them by less of a connection than others they're the person that if you need they will come thank god for people like that right and my dad was one of the people like that and um he would tell me I was a damn fool. He would have <laughs> he would have made my life hell when I got there, but he would get me somewhere safe before he made me feel like I was ten years old again. Uh, what is it with dads that they can't like uh, recognize your uh, your development past like twelve years old? Like, is that am I alone in this? Like, uh, you know, as a father now, I've got a fourteen year old daughter, and uh, I'm trying real hard to not that bring that bit into it, but. I can almost detect it in myself. Like, does she really have to have her slippers on? Is that actually important? Or is that just me thinking she's still eight years old? But my dad, bless him, like, I can remember, like, fast forward, obviously, I survived this. I did go around the world. Like, I think you can guess that. But um, he came to Portsmouth to see, like, a, a press thing as I got back into Portsmouth. He stood there with me with sir robin knox johnson and the press and everything else he actually sailed in the last couple of miles with me into portsmouth on this open 60 i'd taken around the world he was pleased as punch and then we parked the boat um i got in the car and my job was to drive them they were already by that point in their 70s uh back to their home in devon 
we got to the first roundabout. He starts telling me which lane to be in. And I've got to put my indicator on. And I think I stopped the car. I said, look, either I'm driving or you're driving, but we're not both driving. So uh, don't think for a second that he was some kind of angel because he really wasn't. But uh, at that moment, fantastic to have a voice on the end of the phone saying, you know, if you need it, I will make it so that you can you can come home. So I managed to get some sugar into myself, uh, get some fluids into myself. But at this point, the situation on deck is as follows. The mainsail is down, but obviously this is a square top uh, main. So there's still quite a lot of square top main sticking out. Um, there is a giant uh, Code Zero uh, Kevlar thing flapping around from the top of the well, it wouldn't be. Ke it had Kevlar components in it, but it's not like one of those old yellow Kevlar ones. It's a new sail, actually, virtually brand new sail, but um, but tough as Kevlar and uh, with carbon mixed into it and laminate. Um, it's flying from the top of the rig. The rig is ninety feet above the water. Um, it's uh, and the boat. Even now, we've got this crazy sail configuration going on. Just the peak of a top of a mainsail and this sail flying from the top of the rig. We're still doing six to eight knots uh, directly ahead of the wind. So my task now is very clear. I got to somehow get this sail off the rig um, and and get back into the race. But it's a two to one halyard, so there's at least 180 foot, maybe 200 feet of uh, of sail. There's um, the sale, which, you know, is worth a huge amount to me uh, financially, but also in terms of the race and in terms of competing in the race, I've really got to have this thing on board the boat. But of course, you've got a sail now, which is only attached by its halyard to the boat. Uh, it's up in the air. The wind's blowing 25, 30 knots, whatever it was. You're doing six or eight knots. Like, how would you get it down? Like, have a think for a second. Like, it's flying from the top of the rig. You got a two-to-one halyard on it. You don't want to cut the halyard because, sure, it'll unwind itself, but you've instantly destroyed the halyard and you've lost a sail. And these sails are like twenty-five thousand US each, right? So, how do you get a sail that's in that configuration back inside the boat? <laughs> that's where I was at. So, what I did is what I always do. What have I got? What do I need? That's the old military method of looking at it. You know, what have I got to hand? And what do I need? Well, what I need is I need the sail to stop getting blown around by the wind and just to fall under its own weight. And what I've got is 25 knots of wind. So can I turn the wind down? Well, not uh, in, not in any way that I can plan. Um, what can I do to make the sail come down onto the deck? So I started playing around a little bit and I realized that with the boat speed I had, if I took control of the helm myself, I could... We are going directly in front of the wind, I, and we've got no mainsail member, so I can kind of do whatever I want in terms of steering. I can't use the engine, if that needs to be said, because it's a solo round-the-world sailing race. If you use the engine, you've got all sorts of problems. So what I twigged, though, was that I could swoop the boat around in a tight arc by pulling hard on the tiller and swoop the boat back up, essentially nose into the wind, and what that would do is it would bring the boat to a stop for a second. It would kind of worry and confuse the sail at the top of the rig, which had been streaming out from uh, like kind of ahead of the boat, I guess. And then I turned the boat up into the wind. And now the sail is trying to go out the other way, essentially. But as it went out the other way, it came down because it was a moment when there was uh, kind of an equality, uh, I guess, aerodynamically that uh, on either side of it, which meant that it had no lift. So by 
doing this a few times and few times, I realized what I could do is I could turn the boat steeply back up into the wind and then come off the wind again and get back on course in that big S turn where the boat went through almost like 180 degrees up into the wind and then 180 degrees back down. At the apex of that turn with the boat nearly up into the wind and just turning, the sail dropped to almost right next to the boat, <clears throat> right next to the back of the boat. Now, the limiting issue here, what I'd done, I should add as a, a very important detail here, I maybe should have put that in earlier, is I had eased the halyard as far as it would go. So I'd eased the halyard out by uh, as much as literally it would go. So it was virtually the equivalent of having the, 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 the halyard on the deck or the, the, the turning gear for the furling sail on the deck, but it still wasn't quite enough. So what I did is I got some quick lines. So when you've got very, very long halyards, obviously... Um, Part of it is going to be holding the weight of the sail when the sail is up in the air. But that's actually only going to be a small part of it. A lot of boats now run on locks, on race boats, which is that you haul the sail up by a line which is strong enough to lift the weight of the sail, which could be 8 mil or 10 mil line, like very light, very thin. And then it goes up and it mechanically then something which is um, on the end of the halyard, a bullet lock or uh, beehive lock or whatever it is they come up and they lock into the mast and that's very very good because it means that you can um, uh, reduce compression loads on the mast and you can reduce weight and you can do all sorts of things and you can reduce the volume of line that's sitting in the uh, cockpit uh, by a considerable amount but this was an old school boat and it's built in 97 I think yeah 97 <clears throat> so what I had is I had hundreds and hundreds of feet of 12 mil Dyneema but it still wasn't quite long enough. So what I did is I got some quick line, which is just a polyester uh, line. I think it's a, a, a light double braid um, polyester. It's not um, load bearing in any way. But what it does is that for that very first initial pull on the halyard, it's super, super light and it's strong enough to get the head of the sail off the ground. And on a two to one halyard, that could be like uh, 20 feet. So instead of having 20 feet of 12 mil line sitting in your pit bags, you've got 20 feet of quick line, which is only like, I don't know, 5 mil or something and super light and very easy to compress and tuck out the way and it reduces volume in the pit bags. So I got some of this and I stitched it into the end of the halyard and um, then I was able to feed the sail out more, made sure it was a very good little stitching job and, 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 and the way that the two connected together ease the sail out more to get it to a critical value. And the critical value was that I could swoop up and then I could almost grab the sail. I could almost grab the head of the sail. The sail itself was lying on the water. The boat's kind of going past it at three or four knots, but the head of the sail is kind of just rearing out the water attached to the halley, which is attached to the mast, which for a brief moment is not really traveling anywhere because you come up into the wind and pause and then peel away from the wind again. So what I did is I set up a sail tie on the back of the boat and having played with this a few, five, ten times, whatever it was, managed to swoop past it, wrap the sail tie around, secure the sail tie, and now when we set off downwind, we were towing the sail from the back of the boat. And that, I can tell you, was a uh, cause for some celebration. Uh, all the numbskulls inside my head all running around with pom-poms uh, because finally this thing didn't have the opportunity to go aerodynamic again. It was in the water and I was towing it. Okay, so far so good. We are now towing the giant Kevlar angry sail uh, still on a boat that's doing five or six knots and obviously if I bring it alongside the hull I got a few uh, problems that the 
hydrodynamic movement of the water is going to drag the sail on the boat. Anyone that's been uh, trawling with a spinnaker knows there's that moment when it's on the surface of the water and then as soon as it starts to kind of get itself too close to the hull and it starts to get picked up by the hydraulics going underneath the hull, it gets sucked underneath and that's when it's on your prop, it's on your rudder, it's on your keel. So I had to keep it away. So I did have something up my sleeve, which is the fact that I have a canton keel. So obviously my dagger boards are up at this point. There's no issue with those. And I canted the keel to what I was going to declare to be the leeward side, which was away from the sail, to keep the keel completely away and to rear the boat up a little bit on one side so that it wasn't quite as easy for the sail to get sucked underneath the boat in what I anticipated being the next step. So the next step was to get the sail to a place where I could get it onto the boat. Imagine you've got um, the largest sail that's on your boat, the largest spinnaker, and you're on your own and you've got to get it back on the boat and it's in the water. Like you can start to begin where this is, think where this is at, right? That's the scale of the issue. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pounds, probably hundreds of kilos of force required to brute force thing, brute force this thing out of the water at the speed that we're doing. And there's no way to slow down. This boat has got a wing mast and I, we can, I guess we just got to keep building on details here. That's what we're here for, right? To learn and to share. It's got a wing mast, which it's a rotating wing mast. So the mast itself from front to back was probably like a foot um, from in cord length. So what's that? Let's like, uh, oh my god, my brain's going to sleep here. Like 25 centimeters, a bit more maybe. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. Um, 30 centimeters. It's yeah, 12 inch rule, 30 centimeters. Sorry. So um, it's it's a big mast from front to back. And uh, but basically at the bottom of it, it's got a two inch reese hitch, which or a tow ball hitch for those in, in the UK. We don't know what reese hitches are. It's a two inch reese hitch, and it's got like a little a socket on the bottom of the mast, so it has the ability to to move around, uh, turning on the axis, the vertical axis, and that control is um, is is coordinated by two little arms that stick out on either side of the mast, which then have two um, block and tackles, two little tackles if you're going to be traditional about it or two little watch tackles or watch billy tackles or whatever you want to call them but two little um block and tackles which go down the side of the boom and attach to the boom uh kind of above the cockpit and then the falls the the, the loose end of those um uh those uh block and tackles um pull on the bottom of the mast and pull the mast around and the rigging the way it comes up from those deck spreaders it comes up onto attachment points the hounds where the where the rigging comes up the hounds would normally be where your spreaders attached to your mast uh, the hounds now instead of having spreaders you've got a block a kind of a metal fixing on the front of the mast which has got a pin in it and it's able to rotate about oh, i don't know 60 or 70 degrees either side so the rigging itself can flip flop on the front of the mast the mast is sitting on a like a, a, a tow hitch essentially and it's got two arms that mean you can pull it so all the rigging's pulling it down the four stays are stopping it from falling backwards the back stays are stopping it from falling forwards there's loads of compression on everything but it can move on its vertical axis and what that means is that this 30 centimeter 12 inch long corded carbon fiber 400 kilo uh, carbon fiber mast can be turned slightly up into the wind and then that means there's a lot less turbulence on the front third of your mainsail. A lot of your mainsail is is really not doing very much at many points of sail. It's really the leech of the sail, the, the, the final half or third of the sail, which is really where you're looking for power. The front edge of the sail is sitting in an area of massive turbulence, particularly 
you know, when you're beating or when you're fine reaching, um, there's such turbulent air coming around the mast, which is static and in line with the center line of the boat, that uh, you're losing all the power from the front of the sail. But with a rotating wing mast, you can angle the front of the sail up into the wind, so you've got a beautiful teardrop-shaped carbon fiber structure feeding air onto the mainsail. All of that sounds pretty fairy tale. It's not so awesome <laughs> when you're trying to reef sail and trying to get canvas off the boat because you can't reef the mast, obviously. It's still got the surface area of the fact that it's 12 inches from front to back and it's 90 foot high. So I'm still blowing along in this situation at like six or seven knots. Now I'm towing this thing in the water. The hydraulics acting on it are massive. So what I did is I took a line from the cockpit and I took it up to a turning block, a snatch block that I attached onto the foredeck. Now, the boats are very, very wide. And if you haven't seen an open 60, it's a square going aft basically from the shrouds or maybe a bit forward of the shrouds all the way to the back of the boat. So I took the, the snatch block and I took it as far forward as I could and still get a straight pull on the, on the sail that's in the water. And I attached this line from the cockpit through the snatch block back down and attached it to the head of the sail. I then disconnected the halyard from the sail. So now I'm towing the sail in the water at six knots alongside the boat with the boat slightly canted, the keels canted, the hulls canted away from the sail and it's still white caps all around me and everything. And I'm towing it from a line which is attached like pretty much halfway down the foredeck. So then I winch the sail forwards and I um, now am towing the sail alongside the boat from a line attached to the foredeck, which all Sounds pretty good, right? We do have a bit of a problem here though, the fact that how do I get it out of the water? But it's definitely like closer than it was certainly when it was up in the air, right? I had tried the Mary Poppins method of just like whistling to it and hoping it'd go back in the forepeak, but I can tell you it didn't work. So what I did next, I got a halyard and I attached a sail tie to it. And uh, I canted the boat back down gently to see how the hydraulics would act. And I got it down so that it was as low so that it, it didn't, the sail didn't seem to want to come under the boat, but I was a little bit lower down, a little bit closer to it. I then took the line where it was attached to the um, the front of the boat, and I attached a halyard at that point, and then I coordinated the forwards pull on that line and the um, halyard, and I lifted the head of the sail out of the water, um, and I attached the, uh, the halyard to the sail using a constrictor hitch. Is that true? No, sorry, that's not true. Not a constrictor hitch. I used a buntlin hitch. So a buntlin hitch is on a tall ship. Uh, when you have square sails on a tall ship, um, when you want to furl up the sails, the it's a giant square thing that you're trying to kind of like bunch up. And the sides of it, when you lift the bottom of the sail up, the sides have the option to come in towards the center line of the boat or billow out away from the center line of the boat and then like basically overhang the ends of the yards, the, the, the cross braces that go across that hold the sails up. So the buntlins uh, are two lines which uh, go down and attach, or it could be more than two I guess if you're on coarse sails, um, that attach to the halfway point on the outer vertical edges of square sails and you pull on them and as the sail is being pulled up into its gear, pulling, being pulled up into a position where it can be furled onto the yard, the buntlins are pulling the sides of the rectangle in towards the center line of the boat so they don't spill out. But they spend a lot of time kind of like 
flapping and bouncing about in the breeze and there's a hitch which is called a bundling hitch which um, secures them onto the sail so <clears throat> if you were going to if you're going to tie a round turn on two half hitches you would go uh, take your line, you would take the end of it, the bitter end of it, you'd wrap it round the post or whatever it is that you're going to attach it to and then you would bring the line back and you would wrap it around the line and do your first hitch and then you'd wrap it round the line, around the line again a second time and you would tie your second hitch and it is not too hard to imagine that it's a way of tying those two hitches so you actually tie a clove hitch. So there's a clove hitch on the line so you go round turn and then tie two hitches in such a way without getting into too much detail about it that you have a clove hitch back on the standing part of the line, the part of the line that's working. Okay, so you've got that in our minds. Now, the bundling hitch is a variation on this. The bundling hitch, you make your first hitch and then you make your second hitch back closer to the thing that the round turn is around. Okay, so instead of doing a round turn and then making the hitches moving back down the standing part of the line away from the loaded area you're now going to make them so that they move closer so you've got a clove hitch whose end is right up against the thing that you've looped around now what that would mean if you're attaching a line to a cringle on the edge of a sail is that the little round turn you've got um, and the the clove hitch which is kind of like a reverse clove hitch which has got its loose end its bitter end up against the the working area of the cringle, it all starts to tension up and that loose end of the clove hitch, if you want to put it that way, the, the loose end of that double loop knot is tight up against the thing that is pulling. Okay, does that make sense? <laughs> I hope it does. Um, this is not to be confused with an anchor bend, which is where you make a round turn and then you make a hitch through the round turn and then make another hitch and secure it. That's an anchor bend that's different. It's not a round turn and two half hitches and it's not a round turn with a clove hitch. This is like a clove hitch that works its way back towards the loaded part, the, the round turn, and the loose end is then tucked up tight in the knot. So what does this do for me in my situation? Why did I pick this particular hitch? Because when I tied the halyard onto it and it snugged down tight onto the sail, it caught the end of the line and secured it absolutely 100% up against the sail. So now, like, Chris, you can't undo the knot. Well, that's not what I'm looking for because this sail is going to get super out of control if I pull it up onto the foredeck on my own and this thing starts to open up. So I lift it up using the halyard, which is attached with the bundling hitch, and I pull it forward further with the line that's on the deck, and then I bring it down onto the deck, and then I use another sail tie to tie it to the deck, and then I cut the sail tie, which is made with a bundling hitch, from the halyard, because the halyard's got like six foot of uh, uh, of sail tie, right? Our sail ties are two meters long, and that's what I'm using. So I am now cutting up a sail tie, but every time I cut it, it's leaving the sail compressed and tightened and holding it's holding together, basically furled with a bundling hitch. Uh, <laughs> don't ask me how it came to me, that's just how my brain works. So then, over the next hour, I used halyard up, line forward, bundling hitch, cut the bundling hitch off and tie the sail to the deck and just basically coiled and flaked the sail up and down the deck. And if that video is still on our YouTube channel, um, whatever it's called, how to what when things go wrong on Open 60, there's a bit of me at the end in a blue fleece going, yes! And I actually filmed the last bit of me getting out of the water because from start to finish, from 
uh, it all going horribly wrong after the uh, <laughs> after eating my ambrosia creamed rice and then getting that massive catabatic gust. Um, it was six hours. That's how long that took. Um, so I was absolutely mashed after that. I, I just put the boat, I put a headsail up, I think a jib or whatever it was. I got uh, a couple of reef mainsail up and I just went to sleep. Luckily, I was through the canaries. I hadn't got stuck, stuck in the canary cage, but I was absolutely pooched. So um, I set off down the Atlantic having had... Um, Having had the normal development curve for anybody involved in hard skill endeavor. So to qualify that, um, if you've been involved in the development of any particular hard skill, whether it's operating machinery or learning to paddle a kayak or climbing or, or anything, and, and I guess a lot in sports as well, um, what happens is let, sports is slightly different. It, it is connected, but it's slightly different. Like, let's deal with things that have ramifications, like operating a forklift truck or, um, I don't know, t- taking even a school group out on a trip or something like that. At first, you have supreme confidence. Often, if you're young or you're inexperienced in the area or whatever it is, you have supreme confidence uh, in yourself and in the situation that you've got it covered. And that build and build and build in confidence arcs upwards towards what you at the time feel is professionalism within that area of expertise. And then what normally happens, unfortunately, is a some incident which brings you close to disaster or unfortunately brings you, you know, into disaster, uh, where your understanding of what's really going in your hard skill area uh, your understanding develops massively. And if you can avoid not being injured yourself or having somebody else injured, you know, that is the ultimate goal of hard skills uh, development for, for professionals is to transit that period of learning without there being a serious incident. <clears throat> the, you're operating a big machine, a, I know, a, a, a production plant that builds cars. Your job is you press a button on a giant thing comes down and stamps something and you're doing it and you're doing it you're doing it for a couple of weeks and then you're you know you're jigging the panel just before the thing comes down and then you're wiping dust off the panel just before the thing comes down and you get so cocky that in the end and all the old people in the audience here old like me uh they all know what's coming next is <clears throat> you don't get your hand out of the way fast enough and if it's not smushed it's hurt and if it's not hurt it was close and then you realize homie mackerel like if i get this wrong it's serious and that's what happens um, I was an out-of-bound instructor for years. I ended up being a senior out-of-bound instructor and I had the great fortune to be in a situation where I was working with some excellent instructors who were experts in uh, safety. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Aaron Fennell here, uh, Matt Tranter, Richard Gerrish, um, people who you know, had had their own brushes with uh, disaster but were able to uh, transfer that into tangible learning for young uh, instructors developing their skills so that they themselves wouldn't have to have that brush with um, catastrophe. And uh, I had gone through that process. It had been long-winded in that my whole career in sailing uh, was was a, a, a pre uh was preemptory to this point. Uh, sailing around the world with the clipper race preempted this point. Um, that run down from uh, France, you know, had given me some confidence in what I was doing. And now I had got uh, the massive uh, scare of my life, uh, the, the slap on the ass, which reminds you that 
as a seafarer, you know, I think I was criticized once in a exchange on a forum somewhere where I said uh, the sea exacts the full penalty for any mistakes made. And someone said that was a very kind of uh, Dickensian, draconian kind of way of looking at it. But I think actually the quote comes from Joseph Conrad and he was a professional seafarer. Um, and he was a professional seafarer in a time when that was absolutely the truth. If you made an error in navigation, you were on the rocks. If you made an, av- an error and had some kind of plague come on board, you all died. If you didn't know where you were going for the navigation, you didn't get where you were going and the cargo spoiled. You know, like everything was life or death. You go over the side, that's it. End of story. And I think that is still the best way to look at sailing offshore. Like I'm all for everybody getting involved uh, in any way they possibly can. But here's the thing. You've got to do it with with the correct safety protocols on board the boat, with the correct safety standards in operation on the boat, with the correct safety gear, with people who are very experienced leading what's going on and leading it in a considerate and sensible manner, which means that each evolution is properly explained, that it's done safely, and that the overriding set of principles that, that are behind every single thing that you're doing you know, is that number one is safety. Safety for yourself as an individual, safety for the crew, safety for the boat. Next is respect. Respect for yourself, respect for the other crew members, respect for the boat, respect for the environment. Number three is speed and overall position. And for me, I guess that does always inhibit my ability to go fast on the water. I I know how to break the seal on that, but I will... You know, I think we're looking now at going to doing this uh, Ocean Globe race in 2023, which I'm super excited about. But I've got to find a way to be able to go super fast on a boat um, with a crew on board. And I think that's only going to come through a lot of training, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, evolving uh, as as a sailor myself and, and putting my trust in other people and learning. But I find it and I found it in the Clipper race. We were not very fast in the Clipper race and my crew were amazing. Uh, highly skilled, highly driven, highly focused. I do often feel that I, I let them down on the speed front, but I just, safety comes first. Like, I just can't help it. And I can remember later on in the race having a conversation with David Adams, who was the race director in this Velux race, and I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when it gets the right time. But the thing that slowed me down the most was my adherence to trying to be safe. And uh, the skills development that I'd already gone through is is the initiation that everyone has to go through to to reach excellence in in a given area of uh, of expertise it's that thing of having it come really really close to the edge of it all going terribly terribly wrong and then somehow get through it without um without you know losing your life or somebody else's life or injury or anything else coming out the other side and realizing um that's where the edge is and knowing that's where the edge is in any particular sport is uh, what makes you a much better sailor, a much better uh, dune buggy racer, a much better whatever it is. It's 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 what you have to have gone through. So when I contemplate people getting out on the water and they are sailing with people who don't have that breadth and depth of experience and haven't been to that brink and haven't seen over the edge and seen what that's about, that makes me very, very nervous. So I'm all for people getting out there in the correct environment. And that means training for skippers, training for crew on the paid side of things, and then proper training and proper 
um, understanding of you know what's going on. This is not all about the speed. This is not about come on guys and screaming and shouting and everything else. This is about keeping it safe so that we can all come back and continue to involve, inv- uh, enjoy uh, and be involved in the sport. So I, I had a very um, strong need to sleep <laughs> after all that i had a lot of thinking to do and obviously i had to get the uh i had to get the pucker out of my ass and and get back on because like it or not what i was involved in was a round the world yacht race and at this point uh this might take an hour and a half to explain to you in a podcast but i was only a fraction of the way uh into this this race all the way around the world um we can we can jet forward a little bit here. I want to, you know, I love doing these long form podcasts, and anybody that knows me knows full well that I can talk the leg off an iron pot, and I, I do not, um, I do not apologize for that. Um, I want to communicate about this incredible thing that we're all interested in in sailing and offshore sailing, in uh, uh, this thing which allows us to travel the oceans of the world and experience the highs and lows that are you know possible inside a human life but uh i'm not going to cut it short to like <laughs> to fit it into your commute right you're gonna just have to it's gonna have to listen to me on the way there you can have to listen to me on the way back and you're probably still gonna be listening to me later on in the bathtub so that's how it is that's how it's gonna go that's how i like to do it we're not doing it for um you know shits and giggles and uh, and sponsor dollars we're doing it to try and communicate the excitement and passion that we all have for this uh, this incredible thing sailing so uh i'll keep talking but we'll we'll keep it inside of you know a couple of hours and then um you know because you've got like lives and stuff i, I understand uh, and understand how that goes I've, I've heard about that stuff um so i set off so i guess that was the point in which i woke up to the fact that i was going to have to like i know like what can you do you can't like focus in harder you know come on grasshopper practice harder you all you can do is keep doing what's in front of you the daily routine when you're doing this kind of race around the world is uh is not perhaps what you expect sorry just have some coffee there it's uh 1 30 in the morning and it's uh, time to talk but that also requires coffee um the uh the regimen for this kind of sailing is based in science and based in a desire for performance and for safety and in um i think the psychology of how much you can tolerate so the closest comparable is probably having a newborn child (laughs) it's that kind of situation um let's look at the mathematics and the safety of it first that's really the the spine of the thing um if you if I'm doing 16 knots, uh, the horizon is. Let's just keep things simple. Let's not split hairs. It's about eight miles away, right? When I'm stood on the deck, it's like seven point something. But let's say it's about eight miles, right? So in half an hour, I'm going to be at the horizon, okay? Uh, at the horizon, as far away as it is. If I go down through the companionway hatch, and at that moment the top light of a ship just peaks over the horizon, that ship is about 16 miles away. Give or take, let's not split hairs. I will be with that ship in an hour if the ship's not moving. I will be at the horizon in about half an hour. The ship is coming towards me at about 
16 knots. These days, actually, they're all doing about 12 knots, so this equation works better. But when I was sailing, doing this stuff uh, that we're talking about now, that's about 10 years ago, they're all more doing about 20 knots. Um, the cost of diesel, uh, the change in the way that electronics uh, and electronic ordering system has allowed us to change lead times and have things ready to go in warehouses before the shop's inventory system requires them and blah, blah, blah. What it all means is that it used to be really good fun overtaking a big ship at sea because you'd be hooning along at 22, 23, 24 knots and you see a ship and you come sidling up alongside them and they're not really seeing you there because you're so small. And then you'd be able to call them on the VHF, uh, big ship, big ship, this is a uh, little carbon boat. Um, I am overtaking you on your starboard side. And they'd say, little ship, we don't see you on the radar. How big are you? You say 20 meters. If you come out onto your starboard bridge wing, you'll be able to see me. And you'd get these people bustling out onto the wing and you'd be waving at them. And it's all very positive and, and good because there's, there's not many... Uh, merchant sailors who won't you know throw you a wave as you go past in a, an open 60 like hauling ass but um that's kind of gone now like uh they're all doing 12 knots but in our example i'm doing 16 knots towards horizon just as i go down the companionway a ship's top light not his hull he's not eight miles away his top light we can talk about flat earth if you want one day um <laughs> let's do that i'll give you my personal knowledge as to why the world is round but the fact that the top light arrives in sight first and not the hull of the ship would be a good indicator for the world being a globe, not a flat plane. But anyway, the top light comes in sight and that top light is shining out with a, a light bright enough to be seen at about 25 miles. But the top light and its elevation and my elevation means that it'd be in sight about 16 miles. Let's imagine the ship is doing 16 knots itself. It's steaming directly towards me. It's the most unfortunate situation there is. So it's going to get in half an hour eight miles towards me and I'm going to get in half an hour, eight miles towards that. And so in half an hour, give or take, I'm going to crash into the damn ship. That's a bad, bad day. So if I sleep for 20 minutes, by the time I wake up and get back on deck, the worst case scenario, there's nobody on watch on the ship. No one saw me. It's an absolutely reciprocal course. In 20 minutes, I will be in a close quarters situation with the vessel, which a close quarters situation with a merchant ship is under two miles. We do as seafarers with, you know, 20 meter vessels and less have to understand that for a big ship to be within two miles in the open ocean at full uh, sea speed to be within two miles of another vessel, that is what they would consider a close quarters situation. So if I, if it's half an hour for me to do eight miles and it's half an hour for them to do eight miles, and they're 16 miles away, in half an hour, we're going to be on each other's bows, you know, like touching. Uh, in 20 minutes, I'm within a couple of miles of them, and there's plenty of time to react and do whatever I need to do, right? So the great thing about this is that 20 minutes uh, at those kind of speeds means that when you put your head down below, you can't count on much, but you can count on the fact that unless you're extremely unlikely and there's some vessels doing God knows what speed, and as long as you've got an overspeed alarm set on your autopilot system, i.e. it'll tell you if you speed up over XYZ uh, speed, you can mathematically know that you cannot hit anything apart from like, you know, stuff in the water, whales, like, uh, or, or, or black swan events of like, uh, the ship is trying to hit you or something like that you know they speed up directly to try and get you so that 20 minute thing is calculated to do that now 
again, if you're trimming a boat at sea to go racing and go as fast as you can and you're doing it with a full crew, you're constantly trimming the main, you're constantly trimming the jib, you're constantly trimming backstays and, and every aspect of what's going on depending on your skill level and uh, the energy level and, and, and the kind of boat you've got. But when you're racing around the world, you know, and you're in a kind of sleep pattern, being able to trim every 20 minutes is an acceptable uh, uh, pattern. You know, it's an acceptable um, gap between trims. A lot of the time the boats are sailing by apparent wind. Um, so what I can do is I can tell it to uh, sail by apparent wind and then tell uh, set an alarm which tells me if I go off the course that I want to be on. So the apparent wind starts to, the, the true wind starts to shift and the boat starts to follow that the apparent wind stays the same so it is steering by the apparent wind but now the headings changed so i have an alarm set to tell me if the headings changed um if the uh boat is steering by the true wind and the true wind starts to move i can also have a heading alarm set which is going to tell me when the uh the boat's going off the course i expected it to be on so if i know that it's not going over speed i know that it's not changing its angle and i know from a good visual scan that there's no ship's lights in sight then when i go below i've got 20 minutes and it's all good i can trim the sails to the apparent wind and if i'm steering by the apparent wind even if i go of course there's the sails are still trimmed to the apparent wind right if I'm sailing by true wind, I do need to trim the sails because the apparent wind could have changed with speed changes, which would adjust the apparent wind, right? So there's all sorts of alarms that are being set to tell us when the boat's going faster and slower, when the wind's going up and down, when the course is changing, when the apparent wind angle or true wind angle is changing. So there's lots of inputs, but given no changes in the apparent wind, true wind speed, all that kind of stuff, 20 minutes sleep is good to go. You can relax and hang out. And actually, it does work okay because that wake up after 20 minutes starts to become, I say, like having a baby where you just check and make sure everything's fine and then you go back to sleep. Like there's a natural instinct in there which is almost, again, cluing into a part of the brain which is okay. I've sailed with some people just recently. We sailed a Volvo 70 from... Um, uh, from Antigua to St. Martin and hello to uh, Lance Shepard and to Claire and the crew of the uh, of Kraken, the which was Telefonica Black back in the day. Brilliant boat, really enjoyed sailing with them between Antigua and um, and St. Martin. Lance is a great guy to, to be on a, a boat with, very relaxed, very professional, very calm, great boat. And um, we sailed up and we did some work. I can't remember what it was. And oh, I think we put the main slot. We put the main slot. It was just a couple of us really to grind. And I just kept saying to him, slow down, slow down. Let's just, you know, it's a couple of young guys and they're trying to go fast. Like just go, uh, you know, uh, an appropriate speed, a sustainable speed. But they wouldn't have it. Like the arms of the coffee grinder flying around. We put the main slot up and then the jammer slipped and the main slot came down again. <laughs> then... We had to put it all the way back up again, which um, then I was thinking, wow, I really wish that we'd gone at a nice sustainable speed on the first uh, go running. Uh, what would it be on that boat? Like 220 foot of halyard through because it's feeling pretty heavy on the second go through. And I'm not sure if it was right then or if it was a little bit later in the, cr the trip. But, you know, that kind of output of energy, I could have a 20 minute sleep after that. You do all that and then 20 minutes sleep, get back up. And I think actually maybe we're approaching St. Martin or... Somewhere along the trip, maybe maybe not approaching St. Martin, I think I was on watch, but whatever it was, I was chatting to them and I was like, I felt that kind of instinct I have for that situation. And I said, I'm just taking a 20 minute sleep. 
just wake me up after 20 minutes and just literally lay down on the deck in the fetal position and went straight to sleep. So this pattern of sleeping and wakefulness is um, is not like I am now going to sleep for 20 minutes. It's It can just be very spontaneous. You check the horizon. It's all good. There's nothing around. Boom, 20 minutes and you know you're okay as long as your speed's not more than 16 knots. There's some patch of the ocean where there's you know almost zero chance of coming across any other traffic and then you can... Um, you can uh, push it a little bit. But I have had a couple of experiences where I got very close to ships and I have been, you know, again, thinking you're going to die is a great alarm clock. Um, so the sleeping, uh, what I tend to do is um, it's it's harder to sleep during the day. Obviously, it can be very hot. Um, it can be, the light can, and can stop you from sleeping properly. Equally, it can be very hard to wake up during the night. If you do start to, you know, say, hey, I'm just going to sleep at night and do 20 minutes ago, it can be very hard to wake up. So what I tend to do is push through till about one or two in the morning and then uh, declare the next three hours to be like a sleeping um, period, like a sleep session. So then I'll do uh, nine goes of 20 minutes each and then I'm, I'm back awake. And then I'll do another, I'll push through till maybe one or two o'clock, I mean, two o'clock, even in the tropics, the, the heat's starting to go out of the day by two, three o'clock. And then I can do another sleep session for another nine sets of 20 minutes. Um, and if there's something comes along in between that, um, which is some heavy bit of work I've got to do, which we'll go into that later, exactly how hard it is to tack and drive these boats. But I will, you know, just literally lie on the deck and take 20 minutes so I can. Um, the, the way of waking up is... Um, uh, I have a on both these boats I've uh, open six I've had they have like a custom uh, alarm clock system which is uh, I guess some kind of five 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 CMOS chip inside which is then related to a, a very is built rather into a very simple circuit board with a little dial that probably adjusts a couple of resistors and press a button to initiate it and it, basically it's a very simple system where you can set a dial to Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes or 99 minutes. I've never seen one go past 99 minutes. Um, and then you press a button and then it counts down. And then it does, uh, a, I think it's like 110 decibel uh, alarm. Beep. Like really super, super loud. Like I have slept through it, but that's in extreme like situations, but it's very, very loud. But the thing is that it's not really the loudness that's waking you up. It's the uh, gut instinct, that kind of primal part of you, which is starting to come into play of like, I must, I must wake for this sound. Like, you know, the caveman that sleeps through the panther crawling into the cave, his genes are long gone from the gene pool. So we do have some nice, strong genes in our gene pool. Again, trying to relate our offshore sailing experiences, how to be safe how to be intelligent by using our natural instincts and our natural brain's patterns to, to our advantage. So we have a survival instinct. So there's no point setting an alarm and going, oh, I'll wake up in half an hour. What's waking you up? What what thing is going to, is it like the sound of the alarm clock is going to wake you up? The volume of the alarm clock is going to wake you up? What should wake you up is, <laughs> is the firm and clear understanding of the fact that if you mess this up and oversleep, yeah, Things are going to get real bad real fast, right? So it wasn't actually a sleeping experience, uh, but let me give you an idea of a close miss at sea for a solo sailor. Um, I tell this story to um, to open up this closed area of, uh, of sailing and to share with you my experiences so that other people are safer. 
I'm not in any way trying to um, uh, minimize it or try to reduce the importance of it. Um, it was very dangerous, but I will say it was dangerous for me. I was alone on the boat. It's part of this this trip we're talking about now. It happened around this time, so it's appropriate to discuss it. Um, it was in the shipping lanes south and west of uh, the Canary Islands. And what I was doing is I'd gone through some kind of like squall system and where the pulpit at the front of the boat bolted onto the deck, there was some leaks uh, where the, probably where the nav, no, there's no nav lights up there on that one. I think it's just where the feet of the pulpit were bolted to the deck, there was leaks. So what happens on those boats is you've got multiple watertight bulkheads forward of the mast on that boat i had the um sail locker on top of the ballast tanks which was about like 1.5 meters high obviously as wide as the boat got sails in it on top of these ballast tanks and then a carbon door and i go into another section which is now a bit taller you can almost stand up in it because now you're not on top of the ballast tanks but it's getting narrower and it's all black in there. It's all carbon. It's not um, painted or wrapped in white as some of the rest of the boat is. Um, and, uh, you know, you're bouncing and, 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 and kind of jumping around up in the front of the boat because, of course, it's uh, you're in the bows and you're doing 16 knots. And, um, and then there's another door which then gets you into a section which would be equal to being uh, maybe three meters from the bow of the boat. And then, no, maybe four meters from the bow of the boat. Is that right? Three meters? No, like three meters from the bow, I guess. And then there's another door. So we've got the door at the mast. We've got a section, which is the sail locker, which is like uh, four meters long. We've got another door. So door, door. We're now halfway down the foredeck and there's a door. And then we go through into another section, which is empty. It's got nothing in it. And there's another door. And then we go through that section and there's another door. <laughs> so we've got a crash bulkhead at the front of the boat, which is set 10% of the waterline length of the boat back from the bow. So if the front of the boat stoves in, that's going to hold back the water gang. And then we've got a compartment behind that, which is like a further buffer where cracks may develop and water may come into the hull. And then we're into what is the sail storage area, which is forward of the mast and underneath the main guts of the foredeck. And then we're at the midsection of the boat, right? So I used to call that very, very far away bit at the very bow of the boat. I used to call it the chokey, which I believe is an old word for jail or, or kind of like a hole where you throw prisoners, right? Um, so uh, I would have to go and bail the chokey because the chokey was uh, got these feet from the pulpit above it and the feet would leak and the water would go inside. Now, I've only got a certain amount of clothing, so... I, I want to save you from, uh, you know, uh, puking up your evening meal. But what I would do is I would strip naked and go into the chokey uh, to bail because the water inside the chokey is like being in a washing machine because you're doing 16 knots up and down these waves and all the rest of it. And I can either put full waterproofs on and going there, which is completely ridiculous as it's like the tropics and everything else and it's warm inside the boat. Or you can just take all your clothes off, go in, bail, dry off for a couple of seconds, put your clothes back on, then you don't have to dry out clothes. Like, wh where do you think I'm drying them out? There's no tumble dryer or anything. So, yes, scary thought. Uh, but look at it from my point of view, right? It's pitch black in there. I've got a head torch. There's water jumping around everywhere. The boat is rocketing through the night at 16 knots, and you're up right in the very, very bow of a 60-foot boat that's leaping and jumping off the waves. And uh, you're naked <laughs> in this very oddly shaped space because you're in the bow of the boat and you're bailing. And all I would do is try and bail the water out of there into the one section back, which is then flat enough and broad enough to try to get the water under control. 
and get it in a bucket and, and do the rest of it, right? So I'm doing all this. Uh, it's super hot in there. Uh, you know, there's water everywhere. It's everything. And I, uh, I, I get the water back down the boat, out the chokey. I seal up the chokey. And I go back on into the sail storage area, into the forepeak. I lift the hatch. I put my elbows up onto the deck. So I'm standing up. Oh, I stretch my back a little bit. Look back down the boat. And there is a ship crossing behind the back of the boat. And it is a hundred meters, 150 meters maximum away, like petrifyingly close. Like I can see it's nighttime. I can see the people like smoking on the bridge wing as they cross my wake, uh, like seconds behind me. Like, <laughs> you know, there's some times in sailing when you go, oh, my God, like what probably happened is that they try to contact me. They tried to, uh, you know, estimate if I was going to change direction or if they were going to pass ahead of me or behind me, then they probably changed course, dipped my stern. Thank God. And, um, you know, they can drive close enough to like see what's going on. And they're just looking at the stupid guy in the boat. They never call back to them. So. There's the lesson, right? Like, so what I started doing at that point is that when I went and did any jobs up in the bow of the boat, when I went below decks to do anything other than just be in the cockpit and be sitting, sorry, in the cabin and looking at the chart plotter, I had a lot of um, those 20 minute uh, timers, the kitchen timers, just by the door going into the four peak, by the door going into the lazarette, by the door. You know, going into the cabin, even if I if 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 I was going in, I thought I might get distracted. I I was a kid that got distracted. I got sent to my bedroom to tidy it up, and I'd come back three hours later, or they'd come and find me three hours later. I hadn't done anything. I was still playing on the floor, although I don't think I was the only kid that's got that um that quirk. But um, yeah, I I reacted to this 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 near miss by installing something which meant that I could never be more than twenty minutes. Uh, and get distracted again. So what wakes you up when you're doing 20 minutes uh, sleeping and then waking up? It's the very real instinctual caveman, cavewoman instinct of like, this thing means I have to wake up. And you just roll automatically out of bed or cabin, wherever it is you are, you put your head up, you look around, boom, go back down, you can do another 20 minutes, all right? Make sure the trim's right, make sure the speed's right, but you get so automatic at doing that that it's not really a problem. So maximum be sleeping. I think I said a three-hour session during the night and a three-hour session during the day, like six hours sleep. It is possible. It is possible with breaks. It is possible to do that as long as you're not doing sail changes. If you're doing sail changes or you're having to navigate or you're having to stay awake for shipping or anything like that, like get all that and throw it out the window. But I would be trying to sleep during the night and I'd be trying to sleep, um, you know, another session during the afternoon to try and get as much sleep on board as possible. I will say this, um, and we're getting up to like, we're about uh, an hour and 50 I've been talking here. So uh, we'll try and keep that two hour cap for now. But um, God, I thought I'd get all the way to Cape Town. We've <laughs> not even got halfway, but you know, uh, send me some comments or whatever and, and tell me if this is cool, if this is what you want to hear. Like uh, I can only tell stories and I hope we can learn things from them. But uh, the um, the thing for me was uh, taking every single piece of seamanship reading, every single piece of um, experience I had and trying to keep it at the front of my mind and desperately learn how this boat sailed and how to sail the boat solo and how to 
make a success out of a situation which very clearly um, was outside of my experience to competently uh, manage. That is the, the kindest way of saying it. Um, definitely, I would have I would have felt immoral to have crew on board there with my skill level where it's at. As it was, it was a choice um, on my own behalf uh, to, to, to risk what I was risking. Um, had that ship struck me, um, when I start to calculate how much damage I would have done to their ship, I've concluded that it would have been none at all. And, uh, I would have just been a, a bump and a grind and, a you know, and, a, and, a, and, a, and that's it. And nothing and nothing. The sea exacts the full penalty, right? I would have been nothing. I'd have been a bump and a scratch in the night and that was it. So I have learned over time to, um, to mitigate these risks by uh, uh, by keeping to the actions which have come directly from it, from from these weird learning moments, um, people sail with me and say, oh, "I want to sail with someone that's really experienced," and I, you know, I'm I'm so flattered and I'm so thrilled to share this with people, and I'm so excited that they they want to do that. Um, but I do always think, like, my God, like experience is just basically I've made loads and loads of mistakes and those mistakes add up to I have loads and loads of things in mind which I do to avoid those mistakes again you almost feel like a bit like a con man but it's like that's what experience is isn't it like you take all of the stuff you've read you take all of the things that you've learned you take all the things that you've experienced and have scared you and everything else and you ball them all up and you keep them at the front of your mind and you make sure that stuff doesn't happen again and you write it down and make standard operating procedures and you make sure you've got the equipment that facilitates the the evolution that needs to occur if that thing happens again but unfortunately in sailing there is a bit of a move towards um um, making things easier to be the captain. People want to be the captain early. People want to be stood at the front. Like there's some great pride or ego or whatever it is about being the person in charge. Let me tell you this. This was given to me very early on in my sailing career. Better too long the mate than too early the master. Yeah, it is better to be stuck a couple notches down from the top and be learning and be watching and be safe and be... Um, in a position where somebody else has got the responsibility than too early be in the position where it's all on your shoulders and um, you maybe don't have the experience, you maybe don't have the things in place that keep people safe and then things go wrong. So I don't mind to share these things with you and be as honest as I can. I hope that in this sharing, um, it's fun and uh, it's it's a, it's an opportunity to learn in a slightly different way. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, as we get now down towards the two-hour thing, I think uh, I'd say this time there's no questions to answer because um, no one's written to me because this is all so new. But but write to me. Uh, you can always get hold of us um, via the Spartan uh, website um, if you're unaware of it. Um, having had these experiences, all this stuff going around the world and all the rest of it, um, I started a company called Spartan Ocean Racing, which is an opportunity for people to come and join me and join the other captains I work with um, on board the Open 60 we own and the Whitbread 60 we own um, and get out and do offshore regattas and races and voyages. We don't just do racing. I want to be very clear about that. We don't just do racing. And the racing that we do do, 
uh, we're not very fast. So if you're like, you really want to go super fast and burn your way around a race course, um, talk to me. We can make that happen. We do charter boats like Volvo 70s, Volvo 65s. But on the whole, we go safe <clears throat> and we learn seamanship and everyone does the different roles on the boat. And hopefully everybody comes home knowing more and having experienced more in a safe and uh, an educational environment. But through the website, through the SpartanOceanRacing.com website, you can always contact me there. We have a Facebook page. You can get me there. Um, I think we, we may be going to start a, a Mariner uh, website, which will then have the podcasts and the YouTube stuff. If you haven't checked that out already, we have a YouTube channel um, <clears throat> called The Mariner. Um, new videos are coming to that now. Uh, it's been about a year since we did anything on there, but there is a nice little series on there of me getting my newer Open 60, although not new, um, getting it as a boat that hadn't sailed for 14 years when I picked it up in France and uh, finding all the equipment that went with it and getting it together in 10 days and then bringing it back across the Atlantic from France to Canada uh, on my own. Um, so if anybody's interested in content of this podcast you might be interested in the content of those videos that's at youtube under the mariner and uh yeah like i don't know how podcasts really work do you is this a thumbs up situation is this a smiley face situation i don't know listen subscribe watch what's going on and uh, if there is a way of communicating questions to me i'd be more than happy to answer them this is not just about me talking about open 60s even at this glacially slow rate in the end i'm going to have to conclude the story of uh, sailing around the world. It was 10 years ago. We have lots of other stuff to catch up on. Um, but I would love to bring in your questions, your requests. Tell me what's the biggest problem you've got with your boat? Uh, what would you like to do with it? What's the big adventure you'd like to take it on? What's the boat that you'd like to get your hands on? Um, I did expedition sailing for years. I drove super yachts. I crewed on super yachts. I crewed on race boats, uh, race solo and crewed around the world. Um, I think as of this year, we're looking at, I think the next time I go across the Atlantic, it's the 30th time I've crossed the Atlantic. And I'm now north of 320,000 miles uh, sailing on sailing boats. <laughs> that wasn't even a merchant naval career, unfortunately. That's just me messing about on boats. So um, you know what? If I don't know the answer, I'll find the answer. And then hopefully we can share it with as many people as possible. And let's you know get a bit of passion back into this. Let's get a little bit of education into this. And let's, um, let's not let sailing become what I see a lot of the YouTube channels are, which is a lot of, uh, I hate to say it, a lot of kind of like tits and ass i don't is that the right thing to say uh, i don't know if that's even uh, very pc but uh there's there's a lot of people showing off a lot of lot of lot of lot of skin to get clicks and get views and get subscribers and there happens to be a boat there um it worries me that that's what it's about there is a a, a wide open ocean of knowledge which uh, i am more than happy to share i i, I don't want to make it into a kind of i call it like a napoleon syndrome that you get information then you hold on to it build your little empire and don't share it around and uh, if there's an opportunity to do that through this podcast i would be a very very happy sailor so um send me your questions and um I'm going to kick into gear and do another one of these. This will be released on the Monday. I'll be doing another one on the Thursday. And then we'll have a see if there's a separate kind of show that we can do maybe on the Saturday um, to really kind of, you know, build some momentum, build a community and uh, and come together um, and chat and and 
share a passion for sailing. That's what it's all about. So I hope you enjoyed this. We're just past the two-hour mark. Um, it's been me, Chris Tower Major, the Mariner. What else can I call myself? Jesus, I spend more time at sea than I do on the land. Um, yeah, looking forward to speaking to you again next time. And uh, in the in-between time, stay safe with the COVID-19. And if you're on the water, as always, sail safe, sail fast. We'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.